Did you ever read a book that you're really into? It's a good story. It's developing along. There's a lot of anticipation. And then you get to the last chapter of the book and it just kind of ends in a way that's super unsatisfying. You know? You just, I love this book all the way along and then that was, that's it? That's the end? You ever experienced that? Or maybe you're watching a movie, right? Cliffhanger at the end of the movie and you're just kind of like, oh, I hate cliffhangers. Um, this chapter is unfortunately going to land on you like that, all right? We're actually going to close out the, the, the book of, of Nehemiah this morning, uh, which closes out a series that we've been going through, Ezra and Nehemiah, over the last several months. And, uh, you know, we can, we can remember last week where we were as Jorge brought to us chapter 8, uh, and just what was happening there. I mean, the, the good things were happening, and we, we've seen... All along, God bringing his people back out of captivity and establishing them in right worship and relationship with him again. The building of the temple, the building of the walls around the city of Jerusalem, bringing people into that to not just populate that city again, but to, again, be in fellowship with him. And Ezra, excuse me, Nehemiah chapter 8 is a significant chapter there because Ezra comes in and he, he opens up for them something that they hadn't had in their generation, which was God's word. And he begins to just read the word and preach the word. And the people are listening to it. And they went for hours that day, just soaking it in. And the result of that, if you recall from, from the sermon last Sunday, was, was there was a tremendous sense of repentance and revival that was beginning to break out with God's people. Um, that's chapter 8. And as we get into chapter 9 and 10 and 11 and 12, you see four chapters there really talking about the results of all of that revival. What, what was happening because of, of the way that God had come and, and visited his people through his word, the, the repentance that they brought about. Uh, there's this conviction of sin, first of all, that comes over them. And that conviction then leads them to obedience and, and an obedience together in the corporate worship of God. And again, we see happy results of that that just keep going and going and going for several chapters. If, if you want to go back, I, I'm not going to cover chapters 9 through 12, but I want to hit some highlights here along the way just, just to kind of help us understand exactly what was occurring uh, over those days. In chapter 9, we, we read of, again, a sincere repentance uh, after the, the reading of the law in chapter 8, and, and that, that repentance brings about a dedication to prayer. Look at chapter 9. I'm going to look at the first three verses. This is right where we left off last Sunday. It says, Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth, with earth on their heads, and the Israelites separated themselves from all the foreigners, and they stood and they confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and they worshiped the Lord their God. So the repentance is taking place. And, and again, continual worship. When we get to the end of chapter 9 and the beginning of chapter 10, it produces a, a loyalty to God and a renewal of the covenant. This is what Libby just read to us, right? They make these declarations there that there's certain things that they're going to do and they, they reiterate, we're, we're, we're not going to take foreign wives uh, or, or sons for our daughters, daughters for their sons, right? We're, we're going to keep separate 
Again, not as a, as a means of, of any kind of ethnic prejudices, but as a, as a way to say, God, uh, we aren't going to invite into the community of faith here outside religious, false religious influence. We're not going to let our hearts be taken captive again like Solomon's was by, by marrying into uh, foreign cultures with fal- false religions and allow that to distract us and pull us away and compromise from true religion. We're going to rebuild here the, uh, not just the, the, the temple, but, but we're, going to st- we're going to stock it properly with these storerooms. We're going to put the objects of worship in there. We're going to make sure that we're tithing regularly and keep that up. We're going to take care of those that you've placed over us in leadership, the Levites, the priests, the, the singers, all the people who are involved in the, the, uh, the ongoing work of the, of the worship of the people in the temple. We're going to support that ministry knowing that it's necessary for us, right? There's just all these different commitments. They say, we're not going to neglect the house of our God. God, we're not going to neglect you. Chapter 11 and 12 show the Israelites committing to repopulate Jerusalem, uh, joyfully dedicating the city walls and and delighting in the priests and the Levites who ministered to them. If you want to look at chapter 12, look at verse 28. It says, and the sons of the singers gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the, and this is a really hard word to pronounce, Nedophatites, I think it's something like that. Also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth. For the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem, and the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the walls. So again, they're, they're coming back around the city together, right? Uh, and then we look a little bit further on and we see that they're fi- supporting the financial needs of the, of the leaders. Look at verse 44 of chapter 12. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms. The contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather, them, uh, to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel, in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah, gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers. And they set apart that which was for the Levites. And the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron, the priesthood, right? We begin that, that we, to see that, again, they're, they're doing all these things that they've committed to do to make sure that the worship of God, their faithfulness to God, was, was going to carry forth. And then the beginning of chapter 13, we see, again, they also obey the law in regards to separation from surrounding pagan influence and false worship. Chapter 13, verse 1. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. And as soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. 
So God had said that there would be no Ammonites uh, able to, Moabites able to enter into the assembly because they had sinned against God and sinned against his people. He had placed a curse on them. Um, and they had placed a curse on Israel, but God turned that into a blessing. And so God said, look, they're out. They're not a part of this. Don't let them in. Uh, and they commit to doing that here again. So here's the, here's the bottom line. We get to the end of the book, and it looks like all is well in Israel, right? All is well that ends well. All this whole journey that we've been on, we get to this point where the word is preached, people repent, they're making covenants with God. It looks like Nehemiah's ministry and Ezra's ministry, Zerubbabel's ministry have all been this tremendous success, and we can just sort of live happily ever after now, right? It would be great, I'm sure, for Nehemiah to feel like he could have ended his book that way. But here's the thing, the Bible's too honest and truthful about life and reality to pretend that there's always a happy ending. And so Nehemiah keeps writing just a little bit more to tell us about what happened next. And what happened next was anything but a happy ending. As I said earlier, it just sets up one of those agonizing cliffhangers. At the transition from chapter 12 to chapter 13... About a dozen years have passed. Uh, What happens is Nehemiah, as they finish that wall, they finish that work. You recall he he had come from Persia. He was was in the court of King Artaxerxes and he had asked permission to come back and to do this work. And, And Artaxerxes had said, you can do that. But he expected that Nehemiah would return to the service of the king in Persia. And that's what Nehemiah does. He goes back. Uh, and and, and it, we're told that at some point in time, uh, Nehemiah then says to the king, I want to go back again. And it's about a 12-year period of time. If we look at verse 4, Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering. Now he says, before this. Uh, before What? We'll go back to verse 6. Look down, I should say. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came back to Jerusalem. So there's that transition. Uh, so when we read uh, before this, and we, it, it can sort of seem like this all just happened around the same time as all this revival and repentance, and it's, it's not. There's a shift here. We've got a 12-year gap about before what we're about to read uh, upon Nehemiah's return. But what happens? Upon Nehemiah's return, he finds that things have unraveled. And what this chapter is about is really about Nehemiah confronting the sins that destroy the church's faithfulness. Okay? So we're going to look at the three things that Nehemiah brings about here as he comes back and he finds that, man, all that good stuff is just falling apart. And he confronts with zealous, uh, uh, with zeal, I should say, for God and for the good of the people. These things that have really brought about their unfaithfulness. The first one is this. It's confronting the sin of spiritual indifference and neglect. Let's look back again at verse 4. It says, Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering. 
the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers. Do you remember that? We just read that in chapter 10. They'd set apart these rooms to put these goods in there for the uh, ministering uh, to the, the, the leaders of the temple worship. He takes these things out of the storerooms and he, and he makes an apartment, if you will, a house for Tobiah. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king. And I came to Jerusalem and then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw out all of the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled, each to his field. So I confronted the officials and I said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and I set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shemaliah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant Hanan the son of Zakur, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable. And their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. All right, so again, Nehemiah comes back and he finds two significant and terrible developments in the temple of God. The first being that Eliashib, who was the priest, uh, was he uh, the same Eliashib that we've seen earlier and we'll see later in this chapter who was actually the high priest? It's possible or it might have been another priest named Eliashib because he's not called the high priest here. But nonetheless, he's a priest. He's got some kind of control, some kind of uh, uh, responsibility over the temple. And this guy Eliashib goes ahead and he takes out what was in these storerooms and makes a way for Tobiah so that Tobiah can have this lavish living space. Now remember, we know Tobiah. We've seen Tobiah coming up over and over again throughout the narrative here in Nehemiah. And he's a bad guy. He's been an enemy of God. He's been an enemy of the people of Israel. He's continually tried to, along with Sanballat, to try to undo God's work here, to try to prevent the wall from going up. He's been an agitator all this time. Right? He is the governor of, of neighboring Ammon, and, and he's, he's just bad news. And yet, for some reason, there's these, these relational connections that keep being made with him. And Eliashib the priest has done this here. And said, you know what, man, well, I'll, give, I'll give you a space. Come on in. I'll, I'll clean out some rooms and you can live here. Now, now, what have we just read in verse 1? On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. Who's Tobiah? He's the governor of Ammon. He's an Ammonite. So right after they're reading this, within a few years, the priest is like, Ammonite? Sure, man, I got a spot for you. And he lets him in. 
The priesthood and the people, by the way, I don't, I don't think Eliashib could have done this entirely on his own. If he wasn't the high priest, certainly the high priest would have known about this. The people would have known about this. There seems to be some collusion here or at least a, an ignoring of what was going on. They've not just broken their oath and broken the law, but they've, they've done so in, in, in a most egregious and dangerous way by letting in uh, not just an, an enemy of God, but the enemy of God and them, Tobiah, this man who's harmed them so much. Now look, we, we can see this as, as symbolic, and, and maybe in some ways we, we should, right? There's, a, there's sort of a, a moral lesson here, right? It, that, that there's a danger to the well-being of God's people and certainly the, the well-being of, of, of right worship when we let in the enemies of God. We sort of let the outside influence in by compromise, just sort of take what was set apart, should be set apart for the Lord within the household of God itself and just sort of invite in the world. Invite in godlessness. Uh, we can certainly find symbolism in that and, and find lots of application for the church even today. But I, I don't want to necessarily go too far down that road. And it, it, This is not just symbolic. This just this happened. They just inv they invited this guy in. This is a, a historical event here. And it happened probably because of a relationship that developed between Eliashib and Tobiah. What kind of relationship? We don't know, but we're told in the book here that, that Tobiah has, has married into uh, the, the Jewish people. There's, there's business relationships that are going on. Again, Tobiah is a very powerful guy. He's got a lot of influence economically, and he's got a lot of influence politically. So there seems to be some kind of advantage that we can assume that Eliashib might feel like he's gaining by, again, making some kind of an allegiance with Tobiah. I get this picture in my mind of, of um, just kind of a, by way of an analogy, uh, sort of like the, if, if, if there's somebody that you know that's, just a, that's clearly a family wrecker. Maybe, a, maybe, maybe there's a, a, a past uh, boyfriend or girlfriend of your spouse who, who sort of reappears on Facebook or reappears in, in the scene is just sort of kind of hanging around your family. And you're sensing, like, this is dangerous. Um, and you don't do anything about it. You don't step in and say, you know what? Just take a hike, you know? You don't say to your spouse, cut off the contact. But you just kind of let them hang around a little bit. Knowing full well that it, but by doing that, there's a good chance that, that some kind of wedge is going to be driven in that can wreck your family. That's kind of the picture I get about Tobiah. They just keep letting him hang around. He's, he's going to drive a wedge here, and they don't do anything about it. Nobody steps up to the guy and says, dude, get out of here. In fact, they say, hey, come on in. Friendship with the world is, is devastatingly detrimental to the pure worship of God. Friendship with the world is, is devastatingly detrimental to our own safety, the safety of our souls. 
Again, I think there's, there's sort of this idea that there's a, an advantage that's being sought in developing this relationship, but the only thing that is happening is that they're just being taken advantage of. Why is that the case? Well, here's why. You can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and mammon, right? And that's kind of what's happening here. There's sort of this entertaining that, well, we... We'll keep the temple, and, and, but, but let's, let's make this partnership. The problem is that they don't end up keeping the temple and the worship. Because the result of this is that, again, this, these storerooms have been emptied out, which means that the, the, the worship in the temple is hindered. They, they can't bring the tithes in and store that. They can't make provision for the Levites, the priests, and the singers because there's no room for that stuff. And what happens then is those people have to go back to their fields to earn a living. So they're not able to, to lead. They're not able to teach. They're not able to, to perform the, the rituals of worship there. And the whole thing just begins to fall apart. The result was neglect of the house of God, which made it nearly impossible for worship in Israel. Remember what Libby read the last verse, chapter 10, verse 39, they said, we will not neglect the house of our God. And it just takes a short period of time. Within 12 years, they've completely neglected the house of God. What's the, what's the basis of our giving? That, that, that's really a question that ought to come up here. What's the basis of our giving? The basis of our giving is, is, a, is a sense in which we recognize that we're saying to God, look, God, we, this, this is all yours. And to support what you have provided for us in this temple, in the worship, in the leadership, in the teaching of the word, that's, that's of, of supreme value to us. So we need to give to that, knowing that, that that's the most important aim we could have. And what happens so often rather than said is, is we sort of say, well, you know, there's other things that seem to be important and sustaining and life-giving and, and, and those things begin to distract our attention away from what, what truly matters most. And pretty soon we've neglected entirely the house of God. It's a little different for them than it is for us. Right? We're not under a command to tithe. We don't, we don't want to consider this the house of God. But you are the house of God. And God's provision for us is, is still the same. Right corporate worship, supporting of the ministry of the word, prioritizing him above all things, right? And when we neglect that, the whole thing falls apart because you can't serve God and mammon. Raymond Brown in his commentary says, every believer needs a greater sensitivity to sin. All too easily, the ugly thing gradually becomes tolerated, even viewed as the possible useful thing, then the permissible thing, and finally the attractive thing. And that's the downward slope of sin when we try to serve two masters. You'll end up loving one and despising the other. 
What's the relevance and application for us today? Again, we don't have a temple, right? We, the local church building isn't necessarily a holy site that needs to be kept unstained from the world. The building doesn't. But the Apostle Paul reminds us that the temple of God for Christians has two forms. The first one is our physical bodies, and the second is our spiritual community. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. In 2 Corinthians 6, 16-18, For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will make my dwelling place among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them. From who? The, from the world, says the Lord. And touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. We, we, we have this same call from God to recognize that, look, when we invite in, whether it's into our own individual uh, lives, through our, through our bodies, through our minds, through what we absorb, or whether it's in the community of faith and what we tolerate, that we have the same obligation to not neglect the house of God because it's dangerous for us. And we have to realize this too, because that temple the modern temple for believers is, is the corporate community that your individual sin is never in isolation. It always affects the community of faith. It just, it just takes individual sin. It's that, it's that greed. It's that worldliness on behalf of one person that begins to pull back and say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give my attention and my resources and my affection to the world. And it, and it, and it, it decreases the, the strength of the community of faith. And it bleeds in, and, and as it just continues to peel away, it doesn't take very long for the whole thing to fall apart. And so Nehemiah comes in with a zealous passion for God and says, this must end. And that's the first thing he confronts. Spiritual indifference and neglect. The second thing is the sin of materialism. Look at verse 15. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and I said to them, what is this evil thing that you're doing? Profaning the Sabbath day. Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you're bringing more wrath on Israel by, by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors be shut and I gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load may be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem 
once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. So you get what happens? Again, we've just read previously in these covenants that they made, they specifically said, we're not going to do business on the Sabbath. We're not going to invite outside vendors to come in and sell to us on the Sabbath. We're going to keep this day of rest holy before you, God. And just a few years later, gates are open. They're inviting people in. They got booths being set up. The merchants are coming from all over. It's just a day at the market. And so Nehemiah comes in and he says, this is evil. Again, they've broken the covenant. They've broken the law. They've abandoned the Lord. It's interesting here that um, it reads that the the merchants then, well, they just decided to go outside the walls. Just kind of camp out out there and just wait. So that there's kind of this idea that if, well, if if Nehemiah is going to shut the gates, we'll just, we'll kind of go outside and we'll be be in line. It's sort of like uh, the Apple store on an iPhone release date. We're just going to kind of hang out here on our, on our chairs and our tents and sort of wait for the doors to open so we can rush back in. Or maybe there's a sense in which if we just hang out right here outside the gate, those who, you know, they, they really still want to buy fish from us, even though it's the Sabbath, they can just walk outside and grab it. And so Nehemiah goes out and he says, look, uh, guys, I wasn't talking about the letter of the law here. I'm talking about the spirit of the law. Get off my lawn. Right? And if you don't, Nehemiah was probably in his 60s at this point, by the way. I I imagine he was uh, still a very intimidating man. And the fact that he says that they did it once or twice makes me think they probably tested that and they learned the hard way. We should probably get off this guy's lawn. But of course, this wasn't his lawn. Again, this was God's lawn. This was the household of God. This was the city of God. So what's happening here, again, is, is, is Nehemiah saying, look, again, our, our hearts have, have gone away from honoring the Lord and, and giving a day to Him as holy. And, and we've just sort of allowed our consumerism and our materialism to just take our, um, uh, sort of take our desire our ambition, our expectation for security, and just completely put it in stuff. We're not going to trust and rest in the Lord on this day. We're going to go buy stuff. We're going to go sell stuff. We're going we're to secure our own bank accounts and portfolios and our kitchen cupboards and not do what the Sabbath was intended for. What was the Sabbath intended for? God worked and then God rested and he's gave us that same pattern as if to say, look, as you continually work and you should and spend six days a week putting food in your cupboards and, and buying and selling and work. But, but at the end of the week, you, you stop and you rest because you recognize that that work, though good and, and ordained by me, doesn't ultimately sustain or satisfy you. I do. What you gain from all that work ultimately comes from me. 
Rest in me. Don't depend on the work to save you. That's what I do. I'm your maker. I'm your father. I'm your provider. And you know, it's not usually when people are in need that the temptation for materialism and consumerism strikes most. It's usually when people have abundance and they just get greedy for more. T.S. Eliot says, the more highly industrialized the country, the more easily a materialistic philosophy will flourish in it. And the more deadly that philosophy will be. The tendency of unlimited industrialism is to create bodies of men and women of all classes detached from tradition, alienated from religion, and susceptible to mass suggestion. It's, 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 it's usually a danger for folks like us who live in, in, a, in the Western world where we, we, we have. We're surrounded by consumerism. We're surrounded by material stuff. And, and it's, it's, it's usually dangerous for us to say, you know what, we want more. What's the hard issue behind this? It's, it's the belief that our greatest and most urgent needs will be met not by entrusting ourselves to the provider, to the Lord, but by pursuing the security of the temporal. And what is that? That's idolatry. That's idolatry. Again, Sabbath is about rest. It's an acknowledgement that our work, our business, our investments, though necessarily, ultimately depend on God. Jesus says in Matthew 6, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. And he says this important thing, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The hearts of the people had gone far from trusting the Lord and entirely into trusting their own consumerism and security through materialism. Nehemiah confronts that and says, this destroys the faithfulness of God's people. And then finally, he confronts the sin of syncretism. Verse 23. In those days also, I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah but only the language of each people. And I confronted them. And I cursed them. And beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. And he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehida, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Remember, we talked about that a couple weeks ago. 
It, goes, it went so high as to even the, 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 the family of the high priest, and it went so low as to marrying even the daughter of his enemy, the, the, the enemy of Israel, the enemy of God, Sanballat. I mean, this was bad. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, oh my God, because they've desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed from everything foreign and I established the duties of the priests and Levites each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, oh my God, for good. We've talked about this already, so I won't go too in depth on it, but again, remember, this isn't just about marriage. The issue here wasn't just about marriage. It wasn't just about, uh, you know, ethnic things, cultural things. It was, it was, well, it was more cultural than ethnic. The the issue here was it was about becoming like the world. It was about acquiescing to the culture. Not, 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 Not just loving the world, but becoming like it. And when we compromise in this way, future generations are quickly lost. I mean, he's saying, look, you, you've compromised, and, and so quickly, half of your kids can't even speak the language of Judah, which was a significant problem, because how else were they going to hear and understand the Word of God and the teaching in the temple if they don't even know the language? They're so in sync up with the, the cultures around them, that's all they know. That's how they think. You think in your language. Parents, I, I, I think it's worth asking, what do your kids see by the way you live your lives? Do they see devotion to the Lord or do they see devotion to culture? Here's what he says to them. He says, don't you know your history? My goodness, I mean, it seems crazy to say, we just came back because we got exiles for doing this stuff. How do you not know your history? And, I, and personally, I want to say that to them with, with such disgust until I consider my own heart and I realize how quickly I forget. Don't you know that God has judged us for this? We just spit in his face again. That's what he's saying to them. Are you kidding me? Colossians 3, 5 through 10 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. This is what he's essentially saying to them. He's saying what Paul says to us in Colossians. Put to death what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. That was the problem. When when, when we get so involved and and synced up with the culture around us, we become idols, idol worshipers. He says, in those things, this is Colossians, in those things you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you've got to put them away. Seeing that you've put off the old self which, with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. This is exactly what they were not doing. And it's destroying the, the faithfulness of the people of God. It's wrecked it. I'm not going to go into too much more uh, in terms of application with all that. I think the Lord has to maybe let us all sit on these three things and, and sort of determine 
by his spirit for ourselves if, if there's something that needs to be turned over. Spiritual indifference and neglect, consumerism, materialism, these things preventing me from giving my all to the Lord. Am I, am I so in sync with the culture that I've lost my ability to, to hear and to be a part of the community of faith, the word of God? This is what was happening. This is, this is how the book ends. And before I, I go any further with how the book ends, I, I, I think it's probably important that we address the harsh and angry reactions of Nehemiah. Maybe that, some of that tripped you up a little bit, right? Um, he went from throwing out Tobias furniture to threatening, if not following through, with laying of hands on merchants to here in this last part, most aggressively, beating and pulling the hair out of those who intermarried. Did that, did that scare you a little bit? What are we to make of that? You're thinking, wow, I hope that's not a prescription for how the church handles church discipline, right? Get over here! Um, a couple of brief comments. The, the first one is this, that that, that's, that idea of, hey, get over here, is probably not the right way to view what he did. Um, we need to remember that Nehemiah was a governor with authority from the king of Persia to enforce the law. Not just Persian law, but the law of God. Right? Uh, so it would be wrong for us to suppose that he just sort of flew off the handle here and started laying the smackdown on people. In, in fact, his anger was a righteous anger. And, and it, it, again, we've talked about this earlier with, with his anger being displayed, because this isn't the first time, but it's, it's reminiscent of the righteous anger of Christ when he goes into the temple and he sees the money changers and he flips over the tables, right? And he kicks them out. It's the same kind of thing that we're seeing here with Tobiah. And the beatings, maybe the hardest thing for us to swallow, they, they, they certainly uh, come across as draconian to us. Those were likely in line with Deuteronomy 25, which did prescribe for, uh, for, for, for public sins, public shame. And the way that that worked in, in, uh, in Deuteronomy 25 was it, was it was whipping. It was called, and the same word is used there for beating, but it was that picture of or sort of the, the 39 lashes. It, it says there that... that those, those beatings, again, which were in front of the community, it was there as, a, as not just a, a, a punishment for the, for the one who was guilty of the crime, but also as an example to the rest, that God takes his loss seriously. It says there that it was to be done up to a certain point, but not to the point of degradation. But that doesn't mean not to the point of public shame, Right? Um, but that, that's, that's likely what was going on here. There were floggings there, uh, and, and even the pulling of hair. Sometimes that might have been more the shaving of a head, but it was, it was a public shame. And that's likely what was, was happening here. Not the flying off of a handle and just beating somebody up, but, but this, this kind of uh, Deuteronomy 25 sort of uh, action. So keep that in mind. The second thing to keep in mind is that we, we should recognize that our modern Western sensibilities may react against an ancient understanding of justice and just punishment in, in ways that are just due to our modern Western sensibilities. Uh, J.I. Packer says this. I'll, I'll, I'll read it to you. Uh, 
Maybe you'll find it helpful. He says, what we must bear in mind here, however, is that the conventions and expectations of our smooth, post-Christian, relativistic, secular, amoral Western culture are not necessarily in line with the truth and wisdom of God. Any embarrassment we might feel at Nehemiah's forthrightness could be a sign of our own spiritual and moral limitations rather than his. Was it a weakness that in Nehemiah's code of conduct, the modern shibboleth, thou shalt be nice, seems to have had no place? While thou shalt be faithful to God and zealous to God was evidently basic to it. He says, would Moses, David, Jesus, or Paul ever have qualified as Mr. Nice Guy? The assumption so common today that niceness is of the essence of goodness needs to be exploded. Nehemiah should not be criticized for thinking that there are more important things in life than being nice. Take that for what it's worth. I would simply say this, bottom line is this, is that God is merciful and that's been the pattern in the story throughout the Old Testament narrative. God is continually faithful and merciful to his people. But when we presume upon that mercy, when we despise it in our continual rejection of his commandments, when we continue on in unrepentance, he's clear, there's no longer mercy for you. The wrath of God rightly falls on the sons and daughters of disobedience. And so that, that's the way we ought to read this. That's what Nehemiah is saying. Look, quit presuming upon the mercy of God. When you keep willingly sinning and doing the same things over and over again, mercy runs out. You've broken the covenant. So now what? Again, we're at the end of the book. Nehemiah ends with, with a desecrated priesthood, a, a faithless people. His final words here indicate some efforts to reform the people again, but we're not told much of his success. We just end here. That was it. That was the end of the book, right? We just end. It's that, oh, unsatisfying ending, right? It's that sort of cliffhanger there. And again, this isn't just the end of Nehemiah. This is the end of the historical record of the Old Testament. Did you realize that? This is, the end, like, this is it in terms of the, the history of God's people and God's work. Uh, our Bibles aren't, aren't set up chronologically. So I know in your Bible, there's, there's a whole bunch more Old Testament books that come after this. But, but Bibles aren't put together chronologically. They're put together more by genre. So you've got the historicals, followed by wisdom literature, followed by the prophets. But this is, this is the end of the period. This, we're at the, about 400 BC, this begins the, the silent intertestamentary period. So this cliffhanger, it's a long one. You thought Star Wars took a long time to come out with part two. This is a long kind of setup for just like, now what? And this, this being written here, again, being the end of the, of the historical record, uh, isn't the isn't the only voice at that time. There was a few other voices that were, that were a part of, of our Old Testaments, but they're, they're in the prophets. Some of those voices were just before this period and some during this period. But what were those voices saying? Well, they're, they're basically saying the same thing as Nehemiah. This is a mess. 
That's what they were saying. They were saying, this, this is a mess. God has been so good to us, and yet we're constantly forgetting. We're constantly turning our backs on him in sin. We're in this endless cycle of unfaithfulness. We never seem to stay in holiness. We've broken the covenant of God. And when you read through the prophets and they look backward at their history and they look sort of at the present at what's going on now, that, that just only seems to serve these dark conclusions. Like, this is just a mess. So what's their expectation for a solution? Well, they're not just looking backward and they're not just looking at the present. They're looking forward. You know what they're looking forward to? Christmas. Advent season for us lasts for four weeks. It lasted for them for over 400 years. But they're looking forward to Christmas. Listen to what they're looking forward to. Jeremiah 31, he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand and brought them out of Egypt. My covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them. I'll write it on their hearts. And I'll be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And at that time, Isaiah is going, Amen, brother. And let me tell you a little bit about Christmas. He says, For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice, with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Those guys were speaking just before Nehemiah. And during the days of Nehemiah, Micah comes along and he says, But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. And one more prophet emerges about this same time as Nehemiah. His name is Malachi. He does get the final word in the Old Testament. And he looks forward to Christmas too. And he says, Behold, I send my messenger. This is God speaking. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. 
He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. Gospel writers tell us who that messenger was. It was John the Baptist. And he came to prepare the way for the promised Savior, Jesus Christ. And Jesus comes and he says, you know what? Jeremiah said that there was going to be a new covenant. And here it is. Here's the new covenant. He says, it's my body broken for you. It's my blood poured out for you. It's my Holy Spirit will come upon you and lead you into all truth. The law will be written in your hearts so that you will walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And because Jesus came, listen, what's the difference between Israel here and the church of Jesus Christ? Well, you think about the faithlessness that they're displaying here. You might go, gosh, not much. We do that too, right? What's the difference? Here's the difference, and it's a significant difference. They were in bondage under the law, a law that they could not keep. But we've been set free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That's Romans 8. So, in Christ, church, we can do violence to sin and throw it out of the temple of our bodies because Jesus fights for us and conquered sin decisively at the cross. His temple, our bodies have been cleansed from all unrighteousness washed clean by his blood. We can battle our temptations to be greedy and instead we can give generously to support the mission and the leadership of the church because Christ has given us all of himself. Holding nothing back. Laying down his very life for ours at the cross. We can rest. Undistracted by the cares of the world because Jesus is our ultimate rest. And he provides us with unshakable, eternal security having been redeemed from this world and called out as a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession. And when we fail, and we do, when we fail to live as we should, Jesus bears our shame and carries our guilt. You know, he was flogged probably in line with Deuteronomy 25, very much the same way, 
39 lashes right to the point of degradation. One more, they say, would have killed him. He was flogged. He took our public shame. They ripped out his hair. He was publicly humiliated in the most ignominious way, putting on that cross. All for our forgiveness. All for restoration to the Father in perfect righteousness. So I would, I would say knowing those things are true in Christ and true of us in Christ, church, how could we forget? What greater motivation is there than the love of God displayed and poured out through the cross of Jesus Christ? We're still called to be holy. We're still called to be an obedient people. But we've been given everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. That's 2 Peter 1. We still need Christmas. But praise be to God, Christmas has come. So my encouragement to you as I close is just this. Let's enter into Christmas, our celebrations this week, without clutter, without selfishness, without consumerism and syncretism with the world. Let's give thanks for the gift of Jesus who takes away our sin and seals us in a new and better covenant. Church, be holy. Be faithful. He's been so faithful to us. Father, thank you for your amazing grace. Lord, even as we consider by your Spirit's help, Lord, if, if, there, are, if there are things in us individually and corporately that have promoted our unfaithfulness to you, there's ways that we've forgotten You bring them to light and show us, Lord, how, how in that sin we, we deserve what Nehemiah dished out to the people. But praise be to God, Lord, that Jesus came and he took what we deserved, he went to the cross that we deserved. By your amazing love, you forgave us by his sacrifice, by his life and his death and his resurrection. And, and because that's true, oh Lord, help us not to forget your goodness. Help us not to look at the, the, the things of this world and, and, and find any value there that would supersede you as our security and as the object that is worthy of our worship. Make us a pure and holy people. Make us a people who come regularly to the table and say, this is the new covenant of Jesus' body broken and blood poured out for us. May we not forget. And may we celebrate Christmas as a people who've been set free 
by the gift that you've given to us on that day and forevermore. Thank you for Jesus. Help us to worship you properly in him, we pray. Amen.